My name is Christina, and thank you for checking in to the Humphrey Riddle Seas. This is a podcast where a friend and I talk about our original characters, the good, the bad, and the self-inserts. And guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Lindsay. I use she/her pronouns, and I have been here before. <laughs> yes. Um, for those of you keeping track, which is me, courtesy of Google Sheets, Lindsay, I think this is your fourth time being on the podcast in total, which I think ties you with Tanner. Yeah. Because Tanner's been on individually for three, and you have previously been on to talk about, I think, a magic school OC. Yes. And the Bouchards, and uh, Yuki the hockey player, right? Yes. Yes. So, who are we talking about for number four? Whatever the <laughs> whatever the turn of phrase is for a fourth appearance. It's not... Whatever's better than hat trick. Yeah. Um, I've gone beyond the hat trick. Um, anyway, today <laughs> we are um, talking about my Marvel OC, Emily Gower. Yes. Yes. And you had her listed in the Google form as being part of MCU Elsewhere AU fanfiction. So I yes. know what AU is, alternate universe, but what is Elsewhere yes. fiction? Um, elsewhere fiction is um, you have a story set in a franchise's universe, but you're not focusing on like the main cast. Um, and certain franchises are better for it than others so mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. probably the best examples are going to come from franchises like uh star wars and star trek uh power rangers has a lot of elsewhere mm -hmm, and oc mm -hmm. um teens pokemon's re really good for it because again expanded universe huge universe with very yeah, loose yeah. canon uh, mm -hmm. um so I decided that could apply to the MCU because they haven't adapted everything yet. And honestly, <laughs> Marvel itself tends to focus on... Um, it's a big cast, but it's a fairly narrowly focused cast. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. at, at least I find... I, I feel like, especially recently, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has mainly focused on the big name established superheroes yeah. that will... That like will get the most name recognition and draw yeah. in the most consumers. Like, yes. Uh, up until well, recently, it's been drawing on the old. I'm gonna say the old standards of yeah, Marvel. A and, lot of characters who came about in the Silver and Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. Um. So like characters who were created between the 60s and the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically, the MCU, it's everywhere. It's an MCU world. We just live in it, even though I'm pretty sure that the House of Cards is going to come down at some point. Um, mm -hmm. But my character, Emily, and her story starts with the Agent Carter TV show. Bless. Yes. Underappreciated. Terribly underappreciated. <laughs> Oh, and her canon is so, like, it's it's dubious whether or not Agent Carter is still, like, canon to the MCU because so much stuff has changed. And, like, for all the mm -hmm. planning that the producers, especially Kevin Feige, have, has done, like, it feels like 
there's been a lot of like we're just gonna ignore stuff from the earlier movies now they had they had they had one whiff of the possibility of two women being in a romantic relationship and said nope this goes in the outside cardboard box yep (sighs) and also um and they're like Haley atwell is too powerful yeah we can't use you anymore yeah like one of the things we chatted about last night at my housewarming party was like um the reaction to Peggy Carter was definitely not expected by mm-hmm. the Marvel execs mm-hmm. because, like, she ultimately develops Alzheimer's and dies at an old age. And it's like mm-hmm. they didn't foresee how popular Peggy would get and how much people wanted more Peggy. And Were I think they blind? Now- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, now they're getting around to giving us more Peggy Carter content, but it says Captain Carter, which is actually kind of a bit of a demotion because she was a major when we were first introduced to her. And it's like, why don't you just call her Captain Britain? Okay. Mm-hmm. Or give her the Union Jack title if you're going to do that. like Major Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> to keep the alliteration going. Yep. So anyway, Agent Carter, it lasted... For those who somehow don't know about this, it lasted two seasons, um, I think 12 episodes Mm -hmm. each. It would air in between the season breaks of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on, Mm -hmm. I guess it was on ABC down in the States and CTV up here in Canada. Mm -hmm. And it follows Peggy's uh, adventures post-World War II, first in Mm -hmm. New York and then in Los Angeles. I think they did the location change for budget reasons because we're already filming in Los Angeles. So it's like, we got all the permits. Yeah, probably. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, um... But it's her setting up agents of... It's her, like, setting up the organization of S.H.I.E.L.D. and dealing with the remnants of... I'm gonna say antagonists from World War II. Yeah. Right? Initially, plus the introduction of Leviathan, which is a Soviet antagonist. I'll be talking about them soon. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. anyway, in one of the episodes of season two, there is a flashback to how Peggy wound up with the SSR. Mm -hmm, Now, this is mm -hmm. a bit of an improbable backstory. Probably just like the writers thought it was cool if she had this backstory. But in season one, it's revealed that she had been a, a code breaker at... Bletchley Park, which is, which was Britain's like big, like decoding and encoding center during World War II. They're very famous. Like you had Alan Turing there, who, like computers mm-hmm. are basically mm-hmm. come from Bletchley Park, like computers as we know it. The reason why they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't let her leave IRL is because she knows too much and she's too useful, like actually mm. genuinely useful. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm actually gonna change that backstory, but yeah, I, I'm just gonna. Use my history degree to point out, like, what's plausible <laughs> and what's not. Um, but anyway, she was at Bletchley. She was bored and unfulfilled. And her brother, Michael, who is implied to be a member of the Special Operations Executive, um, is like, Peg, you need to join up with this. You are going to just, like, he looks at her fiancé, Fred, and is like, you're going to be drinking the cooking sherry in the kitchen for the rest of your life. Okay, wait, hold up. As and he was implying that her fiance was gonna be no drinking Peggy because alone, the fiance or? is like I hate this when when this happens in fan fiction where they will demonize a potential love interest to to force a ship or like uh, to yeah. make a ship like good. Um, yeah. In my case, I've decided that Fred Wells is just a supremely boring man. 
Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he is the guy who, after the war, gets a desk job in the city of London and is always home on time, expects supper to be done, and then goes to bed at, like, 9 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see Peggy married to a man like that? No. No. <laughs> Not until she is retirement age. <laughs> And even then, we we all know she would do something in retirement age. Like, she wouldn't yeah. just, like, sit there and knit. She'd oh, be, like, God, no. knitting Kevlar or something. <laughs> Look, because of my issues with writing Alzheimer's and dementia, because that runs on my family and my audience is not my therapist, um, Peggy will not be developing <laughs> um, Alzheimer's in my timeline. So cool. instead, I am writing her as if the MCU had cast Dame Judi Dench to play her. Interesting. Okay. Yes. And real and real quick, I'm gonna, I want to make sure that we are going to talk about Emily at some yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> this is all set up. Um, okay. Okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. Wanted to make sure. So this whole thing started because Michael Carter was supposed to come back in season three, but Agent Carter never got a season three. And yeah. the showrunner said that had they gone to season three, they would have uh, focused on Peggy and Michael's past and like what he's doing, what what he is doing at that moment and all that sort of stuff. And there would have been like a lot of drama, all that sort of stuff. So um, in one of the episodes of Nyarif, uh, not if I reboot you first, uh, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. gave season, I gave a season three to Agent Carter. Now yes, my fake is like, the plot has significantly drifted away from what I initially proposed, but the general idea, and thank God Tanner exists and that I can bounce off ideas from them, um, <laughs> is that Michael had been involved in a super soldier experiment done by the British. He is now Union Jack. Um, who's a... So, yeah, basically the British super soldier character equivalent to Captain America... Uh, he gets the name Brian Fallsworth, and I'm going to do stuff with him, in- mm-hmm. including, mm-hmm. like, you know, making Michael gay, which makes... <laughs> My solution to the Sharon Carter situation is that there is another younger Carter sibling named Matthew, mm-hmm. who's nice. going to be uh, Sharon's grandfather. Nice. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Nice, clean solution. Um, so, it took me a while to actually get around to writing the fix, because I was doing my usual, like, farting around planning stuff and then I finally started writing so part of the planning was bringing in these cast of characters from a group called the invaders who were like mm-hmm. aside from the Helen commandos they were part of Cap's initial World War II era team they're made up of a bunch of golden age superheroes um, plus some others who were created more in the silver age like in the 60s um, and one of them was one Jacqueline Fallsworth, a.k.a. Spitfire. So, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I was using Brian Fallsworth's, Fallsworth's name as Michael's alias, Jacqueline Fallsworth did not make narrative sense to have. But I liked mm-hmm, the char- mm-hmm. like the general outline of Spitfire. And also my other problem was that Jacqueline Fallsworth is like blonde Peggy Carter when you read like how she's described like from mm-hmm. her wit to her background like she's upper class she probably went to like Oxford or Cambridge and to one of those like really like 
upper class private uh, public schools, as they call them. All that sort of stuff. And I'm like, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of working class heroes. Like, every other hero yes. I find in Marvel has, like, a Fortune 500 company and comes from all this privilege and is a genius and all that sort of stuff. And I'm yes. like, aside from Peter Parker, there's barely any, like, genuine working class heroes. Yes. And then they even made Peter Parker be super rich in the MCU, which yeah, I don't that's... begrudge them giving him money. But it's like you said, like, having a working class hero was very important. I mean, like, for God's sake, look at Miles Morales. His yeah. parents are both um, are both more are, are civil servants, because I feel like working in medicine should make you count as a civil servant. Yeah. And it's not always the best paying job out there. Um, mm-hmm. Also, like, I feel like with Peter Parker, that was kind of like the ghost of Steve Ditko putting in his freaking mm-hmm. objectivist BS into it. Yeah, Steve Ditko got into, really got into Ayn Rand. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, there's entire, like, YouTube videos dedicated to explaining, like, what happened uh, with that. Um, so anyway, I decided first of all, the name's gotta go. So I basically used um, a bunch of generate of, like, random name generators to come up with Emily Gower, because I thought it would be, like, period-appropriate name and has a bit more of a working-class feel to it. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Gower is a name that feels like it's, like, a profession surname. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it is. I do know that it's actually the name of a peninsula in Wales. Mm-hmm. And so I figured, like, if I have to explain her family's backstory... One of her paternal ancestors came from the Gower Peninsula and the family just moved eastward towards the uh, South Wales coal fields because she's the daughter of a miner termed farmer. Um, Mm -hmm. So here's Mm -hmm. how. (laughs) So the basics of Emily's backstory is that she was born October 9th, 1921 to David and Bethan Gower in the town of uh, Blackwood in Carefelly, Wales, which is in the mm-hmm. South Wales Valley. Uh, and the Welsh Valley, the South Wales Valleys are famous for their coal. Um, okay. Yeah. And the thing with David is that he never liked going down into the mines to begin with. And then World War One happens, and he's in the tunneling companies of the Royal Engineers, so he spends most of his time underground in a place he already just does not like. So, mm-hmm. um, his PTSD tends to manifest in intense claustrophobia, like to the point that he could not work in the coal mines anymore. But like he was always good with animals and plants, and uh, he and his family had relatives who owned like a very tiny little farm up on a hill, basically. And he manages to work his way into buying out these relatives who are fairly elderly. And he takes over uh, Pankaru Farm. Uh, Emily is born the third of five children, uh, second of three daughters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very middle child. Um, <laughs> her eldest sibling is Tom. Uh, then there's Jennifer. Um, then Dylan. Then Olwen. <laughs> Dylan. It's a legit Welsh name. It's been around since the Middle I, Ages. 
I know. I yeah. just every time that I hear the name Dylan, my two points are either my friend Dylan or Dylan yeah. from Zaldin <laughs> in Kingdom Hearts. And then later on, Tom and Dylan are gonna have a bit of a laugh when when Dylan Thomas becomes famous as a poet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the other literary reference in this family is um, Bethan is a big fan of the Bronte sisters. So, mm-hmm. like, there's, of course, Emily. And then she named her other two daughters, Jennifer Charlotte and Olin uh-huh. Ann. There she, you go. Yeah. She was very happy when Olin was born a girl. <laughs> it's like, yes, yeah. I have the set. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um. So yeah, she grows up in, Emily grows up in this tiny little farmhouse that was like built in the 1600s. Well, part of it was. Um, The other part is like the 1790s, but it's like tumbled down, half built into a hill, uh, kind of a gloomy place. It's, yeah, very Bronte sisters. (laughs) Now that I think about it. (laughs) Um, They raise sheep, they grow some grain. Um, Bethan uh comes from a slightly uh more towards middle class family like her family was involved in uh the methodist church in wales and that's going to be a mm-hmm. bit of an important factor in emily's development um okay so bethan uh had trained to be a teacher uh prior to marrying david and so like she makes sure that the kids have a really good education and her mm-hmm. sister Gladys, um, she taught for a while, then she married her husband, Arthur, who's a local Methodist minister, and then Arthur dies from complications from World War One. So, because his pension wasn't great, Gladys had to go back to teaching, but she gets a job at this place called the Lewis School for Girls. Uh, there's uh, the Lewis School for Boys and the Lewis School for Girls, and they're kind of... Um, they're grammar schools, trying to describe pre nineteen nineteen fifties British school system systems is insane. I don't want to do it. But basically, a grammar Fair. school was kind of like a step below a public school. Like they had really good education. They had a really good education program. It's just it wasn't as you know. Mm-hmm. It didn't have the same clout that going to a public school had. So Gladys is able to get um, her nieces and nephews into the Lewis School. Now, only Olwyn technically finished um, her entire education, like secondary education. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody mm-hmm. else left early. Tom got an apprenticeship. Then World War One, World War Two happens, and he gets uh, he winds up in the Royal Navy as a mechanic. Um, Dylan leaves at seventeen, joins the RAF as a mechanic. Um, mm-hmm. Jen- Jenny had uh, left to go to a domestic college um, and then she joins the Women's Land Army and becomes a land girl so she's working on a farm elsewhere as a mechanic <laughs> you're seeing a pattern here and uh, <laughs> Emily leaves early uh, like she doesn't finish her school year her final school year when the war happened, when the war starts, um, joins the auxiliary, auxiliary territorial service as a mechanic and mm-hmm. driver. 
<laughs> there you go. There you yeah. go. Yeah. They're all mechanics. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it Look, it's it. an important field of work. <laughs> yep. Gotta make everything run. Um, mm-hmm. This also was uh, spurred on by a chat I had uh, with my boss. We were talking about like what our families did during World War II, and it seemed like a lot of farm kids in Canada, so I don't know what it was like in, in England or in the UK itself, but like in Canada. So many farm kids, when they joined up with the with the various services during World War II, wound up being mechanics because they all knew how to like fix farm equipment. So it's like the transition over to military equipment is going to be easy for you. Mm-hmm, There's mm-hmm. not much difference except things go boom. So Emily spends her time as a driver and mechanic, which is actually one of the better job, one of the better gigs to get with the ATS at the time. Because it was seen as a bit glamorous. Oh, I get to drive around and I might become like the staff driver for an officer or whatever. And Emily, she becomes a really good driver. She's also a really fast driver. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> bit of a speed demon, that girl. Has a lot of speeding tickets. <laughs> um, but one of her sergeants, uh, Betty Barstow, who is also a character, uh, a Golden Age character who I appropriated. She was the Silver Scorpion. Um, okay. I'm playing around with history because the ATS didn't really do this, but like Betty decides to train Emily to become a dispatch rider on a motorcycle. Emily's still a, a goddamn speed demon. Dear God, stay out <laughs> of her way. But <laughs> um, this is actually kind of useful because what Emily ends up doing is um, for a time, uh, Bletchley Park had to rely on these uh, radio stations along the coast of Britain to get um, to intercept German uh, communications. And like the messages would be printed out and you had to take the messages from these listening stations to Bletchley, which according to Google Maps, by car, that's almost a two-hour trip, if not, yeah, two to three hours, depending on which route you take. Mm-hmm. Um, so Emily can make that in about an hour and a half, because she's just like that. <laughs> <laughs> no rules, just fast. <laughs> yep, gotta go fast, this girl. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she just like makes the circuit constantly, and all the while nobody notices that Emily is fluent in German. You want to mm-hmm. know why she's fluent in German? Because she spent six months with a German family during yeah. through a farm uh, education program. Nice, yeah, in 1935. So um, love an exchange program, yeah. Emily spent time in Germany with the Bront family. She became good friends with their two daughters, uh, Sabina and Gisela. Uh, Gisela is going to come back in a fic I have planned. I might write it with my Agent Carter fic. I just need to see Mm -hmm. how things work out. Um, So eventually someone wises up and is like, oh, this Gower girl can speak fluent German. We might want to interview her for this little thing that we've got forming called the Special Operations Executive. So I should explain (laughs) what the Special Operations Executive is. Um, So France has fallen in 1940, leaving Britain and Mm -hmm. her empire kind of like the only force fighting all three Axis powers at this time. 
Mm-hmm. And it's Churchill decides that, hey, we need like special teams who can go behind enemy lines and basically wreck us up German the Germans and do all of this like sabotage and gathering intelligence and all that sort of stuff. And the special operations executive is formed on July 22nd, 1940. Uh, they are in operations until January 15th, 1946. They're called the Baker Street Irregulars, Churchill's Secret Army, and the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were tasked with uh, sabotage, with espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe and Southeast Asia against Axis powers and and to aid resistance movements and Churchill said that they're they were tasked to set Europe ablaze I'm trying to do a Churchillian accent but yeah (laughs) Um, they were also kind of the redhead stepchild of British intelligence MI6 did not like them Um, yeah yeah that's going to be another important point later so basically how she gets invited in is um, Betty Barstow is friends with someone in an organization called Fanny, First Aid Nursing Yeomanry. It's also called the Princess Royals Volunteer Corps. I have okay. I have my, my note here. Um, they're a British independent all-female registered charity formed in 1907 as a link between the front lines and field hospitals and were involved in intelligence, gather- in intelligence gathering during, during both world wars. While it is on the army list and uses army rank structure and insignia, it is not part of the regular army or army reserves, and officers do not hold commissions. During the Second World War, Fanny became involved with the SOE through the friendship between Phyllis Bingham, secretary to the then Corps commander, and Colonel, later Major General Colin Govins, director of operations and training SOE. Fanny was initially involved with the highly secret auxiliary units in 1940 to act as stay-behind units should Britain be invaded by Nazi Germany. By the end of the war, 3,000 Fannies had served in the SOE SOE in many capacities, most famously as agents. Of the 50 women sent into France, 39 were Fanny members. Of the 39, 12 were murdered by the Nazis and one shot in the field. Uh, the most notable of these agents mm-hmm. were Nancy Wake, Odette Howells, uh, Violet Sabo, Noor Inyat Khan, and Christina Scarbeck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Betty's friends with someone in Fanny who's part of the auxiliary units and is like, hey, how can I get this Gower girl into the SOE and make a couple calls? Emily gets invited to a nondescript um, manor house in Buckinghamshire. She does an interview all in German. She does an interview all in French. Her French isn't that great, but her German is perfect. Like, down to Mm -hmm. having a regional accent, which is such an asset at the time. Yes. And then it's... Because the thing that most people don't know about Germany, unless they actually start taking German lessons, is that there are very strong regional dialects, especially at this time. Um, it's like the United States. Yeah. And it's like, if you can fake a regional accent, like, it's going to help you so much. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the other thing is that she does a marksmanship uh, test, and it turns out she's really good. So they're like, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to move you on to training. So she goes up to Scotland, where she does her commando training. And 
this isn't the first time that her healing factor has activated. That happened when she was like nine and got kicked by a uh, plow mm-hmm. horse. Okay, so she's got a healing factor. Yeah, she's got a healing factor. That is part of her mutation. Uh, her other nice. mutation is that she is super strong. Now, again, this is like at okay. a low level. It's not fully activated, but like she, it's low enough that she could write it off as her just being like, I grew up on a farm. I have to handle like 100 pound sheep as yes. like a 13 year old. <laughs> I'm just sorry. I just pictured hucking a sheep at a Nazi. <laughs> Yeet! Yeet! Take mutton. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like she just thought, "Oh, I'm farm strong. Like, no big deal." So anyway, during mm-hmm. her training on uh, on the assault corps, she manages to like uh, sprain her ankle in a way where it's like. That would take you out for a couple months, and she heals within, like, a couple weeks. And Mm -hmm. a couple people notice, but it's, like, again, no BD. So she goes on to spy school, Mm -hmm. um, and then she goes Mm -hmm. on to parachute training, and the initial plan is to send her into Belgium. Because, like, as I said, her French isn't great, it improves, but it's still, like, there's an accent. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, the we could have her pose as a German Belgian because there's a small German speaking population in Belgium. But mm-hmm. then plans change and he, she just gets sent into France because someone had to be re- because they needed a courier to be replaced. She uh, this courier got um, injured and they didn't want to take her to the hospital, so they had to evacuate mm-hmm. her out. And like right now, we need a new courier, so Emily gets sent in to Toulon. Which is in southeastern France. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, mm-hmm. not that far away from Marseille. And it's a disaster. They wind up, uh, they have this really great asset who's a secretary in the Toulon Harbor Master's office. And she's the one who discovers that there's this entire smuggling operation that Hydra's involved with to get um, a vibranium out of Wakanda. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> And then just bad decisions are made and the Emily cell gets mostly captured in this raid that happened at the um, Villa Villa Sylvie or something down in Marseille that included like members of her cell. And Emily's kind of left the last person standing with these really important documents and is like, I gotta go. So <laughs> yes, Indeed she you walks five hundred miles to Geneva mm-hmm. to deliver these documents by herself. Um, she does get some help <laughs> in uh, Leon because uh, there's this actual um, brothel madam who was part of the resistance, and she mm-hmm. got her sex workers to. Uh, act as her agents and she used to help like downed allied pilots and Jews to like help them escape uh, the Nazis Uh, her name was uh, Madame Germaine Guerin very glamorous woman Mm -hmm. and I'm like I have to at least give her a shout out so yeah she helps out Emily when Emily gets into a tight spot and Leon and then like Emily makes it to Geneva. She delivers her intelligence, but for various reasons, they don't actually know what to do with her for a bit. 
So they mm-hmm. send her home, and then uh, they reassign her to Egypt, which, uh, like, this is during the North Africa campaign, campaign and all that. And her main job is basically kind of like a Bletchley Park job where she is translating intercepted messages uh, between the Germans. It's not really exciting. She's one of the first people to know about a outbreak of foot fungus amongst the 22nd Panzer Division. <laughs> Super glamorous stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but more importantly, she meets a woman in Fanny named Edith Harker. Um, mm-hmm. She's this Oxford-educated, fairly... Like, to Emily, she's glamorous because she's, like, tall and auburn hair, and she kind of looks like Ingrid Bergman, and she's so educated and so sophisticated. How could she ever pay attention to me, my little bisexual heart? And Edith <laughs> is like, oh my god, you are so adorable. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. I, I'm actually developing a crush on you. And, yeah, they have a Aww. liaison. They they Aww. become girlfriends. It's great. Nice. And then Unsur- unsurprising, <laughs> given your bent as a writer, but still appreciated. Yes. <laughs> but then the plot happens. Um, Emily gets chosen to take part in Operation Meridian, which is my version of the British Super Soldier program. So mm-hmm. Michael picked basically got to pick her out of like hey you want to go find this other german scientist who worked with um abraham erskine the guy who came up with the super soldier serum that was administered mm-hmm. to steve rogers and of course like we all know the first avenger uh dr erskine gets assassinated by hydra and he's like the only person on earth who knows the formula for the super soldier serum so mm-hmm. the thinking is, like, if we can find this other guy who also took part in the administering of the prototype serum on um, on the Red Skull, maybe we can, you know, kind of get this back into gear. So Michael gets kind of his option of, uh, like, a partner to go with him to find this doctor. And basically... Mm-hmm. Everybody is trash, or everybody knows him from when he was Michael Carter because, like, he's supposed to have this other identity now. And the mm-hmm, rule is, like, mm-hmm. nobody f- who knows you can help you. It's like, yeah, he is going bonkers right, right at this point with sheer frustration. And then he finds, I out. don't blame him. Yeah, and then he finds Emily's file kind of at the bottom of the pile because she's like the lone girl that they tossed in. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, I guess. <laughs> like if I have to pick someone to pretend to be my fake wife, yep. she seems fun. Yes, she seems. She seems like a decent person. Yeah. So Emily's brought in, and during the briefing, she is like, it's hard to describe the the face of someone who is like trying to comprehend that they're now in like this sci-fi, like military sci-fi thriller. <laughs> but yeah, whatever face that is, that's what Emily has. Like just mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. this is wow. It's like oh, I genre hopped. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, she. I wouldn't say that she's game for it initially. She's just like, well, this is my life. 
Mm-hmm. And then, like, they go up to Turkey to find uh, Ur- um, Eric Schmidt. He's a scientist. And in the original comics, he's the one who gives Brian Falsworth the super soldier serum. And unfortunately, he died in the comics. This this one, like, I I haven't revisited him yet, but, like, I'm keeping him alive. Um, mm-hmm. He's just kind of in a bad situation right now. So they get... Uh, while they're on this journey, they realize that uh, they're being followed by two Hydra agents. Um, mm-hmm. and Time to get dangerous. <laughs> yeah, gotta get dangerous. So they pick up uh, Schmidt in this town called Sivas, which is in central Anatolia. And they're about to, like, the plan is we're gonna take the train back to Ixandoran and then take a ship back to the base. Everything will be great. It'll be fine. <laughs> oh crap! There's an Italian following us, and he's attacking Emily. God damn it! <laughs> so yeah, they have to um, jump off the train in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere, Anatolia, in Turkey. They're like, crap. <laughs> so then, like, there's a good chunk of them like trying to head east because they figured like. If we go southeast, we can either, like, cross into Syria or maybe, like, try to go over to Iraq. Um, Syria is under French occupation. Iraq's under British occupation. We'll be in home territory. We'll be fine. We'll be great. And still, mm-hmm. stuff happens. Action happens. There is chase scenes. There is gunfights. There are, like, fist fights. All that sort of stuff. And eventually, eventually, um, they get to Iraq. <laughs> Bloody and broken, but they're in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing that like I think there was a movie a couple years ago of like I think it was called Date Night and it was just like this couple where they go on a date and they just get their their night just gets progressively more and more buck wild and eventually they end up in ridiculous circumstances just yep. absolutely just absolutely destroyed wardrobes just like we are so tired right now yep that for platonic. Yep. And um, eventually they managed to hook up with um, people involved in Operation Meridian, which while they were gone, in the week that they were gone, there was a shift in command because emergency situation involving the, the CEO um, and his son. Um, his terrible, awful son. Um, <laughs> he's kind of like going to be the spy master here. And his lovely assistant, Madeline Joyce Frank, who mm-hmm. is Michael's old school friend from his Oxford days. Um, uh <laughs> No, she's cool. She's cool. Um, she meets Michael because, like, he's taking Arabic lessons and is having troubles with verb conjugation. And she's like, here, I can help you with that. And they strike mm-hmm. up a friendship. And it just so happens that Michael is part of the rugby club at Oxford and one of his teammates uh-huh. is Robert Frank who's like a huge 6 foot 4 well over 200 pounds he is the number 8 the big guy on your rugby team Madeline and Edith Harker come to watch one of the games and immediately Maddie and Robbie make hard eyes at each other it is just love at first sight they wind up getting married. They are very happily married. Extremely happily married. Annoyingly happily married. 
<laughs> they're one of those couples. Um, they also have an open relationship because of their own proclivities. It, I love them dearly. And Robbie has, like, no baggage. He has no problems. He has, like, three brain cells that are dedicated to, like, fighting, being a lawyer, and loving his family. Nice. <laughs> so, anyway, they meet up with... Um, I'm basically recapping this, Beck. Um, <laughs> they meet up with Maddie. <laughs> they kind of figure out what's going on, and then they... Um, yeah, the next chapter after that is mostly just, like, a bunch of personal decisions are made. And they also get their hands on a single sample of the heart-shaped herb um, that Hydra was trying to get their hands on for their mm-hmm. own super soldier experiments. Um, and then Michael becomes a super soldier. And mm-hmm. Emily is like, they're kind of like, okay, this is, this is our reality now. We are also very good friends. And I am, we are both kind of like mutually trying to keep each other on the moral straight and narrow. Because Mm -hmm. they're the, in my mind, they're both the sort of characters who, with, I guess, the right sort of nudges that can get into, like, just depression spirals and start making bad decisions. Oh boy, they're going to make some Mm. bad decisions in the future. Um, So, yeah, that was uh, Sixes and Sevens, the first fic. Um, Mm -hmm. And then... The current multi-chapter fic is um, a raid on this island off the, um, a Greek island that I made up, that I based on a real island, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) called Fironisi. Um, And basically that one is, there's this U-boat pen that is causing the allied forces a lot of problems. Um, So blow it up before it can like really get out of hand. Uh, they're about mm-hmm. to do it. I am currently writing the final chapter for that fic, uh, which is going to end in earth-shattering kaboom. Uh, earth-shattering kaboom as in uh, we are introducing another Divergent Universe, or as in rocks fall, everyone dies. <laughs> rocks fall, a lot of Nazis die. Oh, a lot of Nazis. Okay, then that's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's just big boom. Um, it's also, the main villain for that one is a guy named Kenneth Crichton. So in the original comics, he is Jacqueline Falsworth's terrible son who winds up becoming a vampire and has a weird fixation on his mom and kind of revampirizes her. Yeah, it's weird. It's so yeah. weird. Yeah, because we haven't talked about the fact that um, apparently Emily's a vampire. <laughs> yeah, she eventually becomes a vampire. You s- Well, no, I take that back. You said in your submission... That she's that she kind of becomes a vampire. How she does kind of become a vampire? <laughs> um, she gets bit, and um, she does develop like the teeth and the the need for blood sometimes. Um, but it's not like a full thing. Like she can still go out into the sun. Um, her like sleep and activity patterns are still like pretty normal human. They're not fully nocturnal. Um, Mm -hmm. and she gets her super speed from that. Um, but it, basically her X gene is kind of like keeping her from fully, like going full bloodlust, like mindless killing machine. Like the, like the healing factor is like healing her from 
potential full vampirism? Yeah, basically. Okay. It, it's weird cool. comic bullshit science. Yes. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> it's yada yada yada, let's get on with the adventures here. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, she gets, like, an extra boost in power from this, too, and um, also her senses increases. So, like, she might look psychic, but she's actually just, like, I can hear very well and smell extremely well. I'm basically like a shark. <laughs> um, but like they do event, uh, they do defeat Kenneth Crichton for now. Um, <laughs> Vampire nice. has a bad way of coming back. Um, and then the plan is I'm going to skip ahead uh, a couple of years to do the Agent Carter fic, wh- which is what we were mostly talking about last night. Um, mm-hmm. which is going to make no sense to anybody listening to this like a couple weeks from now. Basically, at the end of season two of Agent Carter, there was a big old cliffhanging stinger where uh, Jack Thompson, mm-hmm. uh, one of the main characters, gets shot in his hotel room while he was uh, going to go back to New York. And there's a big mystery of who shot Jack Thompson, and unfortunately it wasn't enough to save the show. Um Mm-hmm. So the showrunners later on said that they basically confirmed that it was Michael who shot um, Thompson. Jack. Yeah, Jack. Yeah. And that season, season three was going to revolve a lot around Peggy and Michael's relationship. Um, mm-hmm. So the Broadstrokes plot is that... Um, Right after the war, there's a bit of a turf war, civil war going on within British intelligence over like how the how everything's going to be structured post-war and all that sort of stuff. And there's this one faction who wants to control Michael because again he's their super soldier. Um, mm-hmm. and, or as close as they're going to get. <laughs> yeah, and they like steal a bunch of files to cover up that they wanted specifically Michael's file because they want to find some sort of leverage to make him behave basically. And they discover mm-hmm. like, Oh, he's gay. He's in a relationship with this Roger Aubrey guy. Who's um, he's inhuman. I decided to make him inhuman because in, in the original cool. comics, he just had like super strength, super speed, all that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I made him inhuman and I gave him, uh, the same powers as, like, Greed from Full Metal Alchemist. Like, he can, like, turn his skin diamond hard. Um, okay. Yeah. And he gets claws. It's... I really like these powers. <laughs> I, I need to see more of that. More of that sort of stuff happen. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And they have... And, of course, there's Emily. So, they're like, oh, these two really important people to Michael Carter. Let's just, like, hold them hostage. <laughs> oh, that does not go well, I imagine. <laughs> oh, Michael gets compared to Achilles a lot. <laughs> Someone's read that one book with the specifically gay Achilles and Patroclus romance. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Me. I did. So, yeah. It, like, even in the original Iliad, it's like, as soon as, as, soon as Patroclus got killed, the Hector, Hector did not have long for this world. He really didn't. So, yeah, in Michael's case, he's just like, let's burn everything. So he goes on a whole rampage to get Emily and Mike and Roger back. And then, like, they 
um, people calm them down enough that they could like talk and figure out like what's happening, what's happened to these files, what the general gist is. Basically, you have this right wing faction who wants control over British intelligence, and they're willing to work with Hydra, with the Hydra references, uh, remnants to do it. And Michael and Emily's group is more of a left-leaning group where it's like the empire is dying we need to find a new place for britain also let's try and make decolonization as hopefully not as bloody a process as we fear it will be like let's Mm -hmm. actually try to work with the colonies to you know make these transitions easy as easy as possible it's a bit of a pie in the sky hopeful ideal but like they're trying to do this in good faith um and we need this these files back because like this is a major breach in security yada 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 so the initial mission is just send michael emily and roger to get these files back and track down the people who are working with hydra and get rid of them um Mm -hmm. because we're entering the cold war and everybody starts backstabbing everybody you, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in the meantime, over in Peggy's side of things, the SSR is about to be disbanded. Um, I've just decided that it's not going to exist after 1947. Um, it's going. Its assets are going to be split between the FBI and the newly formed CIA. So it's more just like a scramble to for mm. everybody to get what they want out of the SSR, and then like Peggy and Susan in particular left are left out to hang because like well Peggy's a woman and she's British and all, all this other baggage regarding her Sousa is a disabled man um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff we don't need them anymore um Jack Thompson was being courted by um the FBI and I think he might have been getting some calls by like th- someone associated with Alan Dulles one of the founders of the CIA and the eventual mm-hmm. director. This is where I'm retconning the uh, Agent Carter short. So, mm-hmm. which kind of got decanonized, but like I'm going to kind of reintegrate it where Howard proposes the formation of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's just mm-hmm. a matter of like we need to get our own assets, our own people. Um, we need somebody to at least be the face. That's where I'm going to bring back Colonel Phillips, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character from the first Avengers. Mm-hmm. As sort of like the mm-hmm. first director. Because he has clout, he has respect. Um, yeah. Everybody would know. He's him. a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I want to write for Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, So there's that and all of their Hydra-related stuff. And I'm going to sneakily introduce one Emma Frost into the milieu. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Just setting up my X-Men stuff. Um, <laughs> because, of course, the Hellfire Club is going to have a chapter in Los Angeles. They're going to be deeply yes. involved in the entertainment industry. Um, and mm-hmm. then there's Leviathan. So they're the Soviet intelligence group that form that was in charge of the red room which is what created like natasha and the black widows um Mm -hmm. so in my storyline they're also the ones who have bucky barnes on ice right now 
So, like, the plan is sometime in the 80s, uh, during the Reagan administration, because all awful things happen during that administration, um, she gets pushed out by Alexander Pierce and his people. And they're the ones who bring in the Hydra stuff. Um, and then when the USSR is falling apart, uh, Alexander Lukin, who was a bad guy in the uh, Captain America comics, um, he's the one who brings over the Winter Soldier for S.H.I.E.L.D. to use. Um, so that's more in the 90s. Anyway, Leviathan in this situation, this iteration of Leviathan is actually on the verge of being purged by Stalin because they kind of got away from their mandate and got a bit too independent and um, Uncle Joe doesn't like that. No, no. So there's a lot of loose ends all over the place and this is to tie up the Dottie situation. Uh, Dottie Underwood, who was also a fairly popular character, and one mm -hmm. of like the first mm -hmm. Black Widows canonic or chrono chronologically. Um, yes. So there's the plot about what do we do with Dottie, and I'm not going to give away stuff like that yet. I I have yet mm -hmm. to outline mm -hmm. stuff, and I am terrible at outlining. I I, I am a veteran pantser <laughs> by this point. Um, mm -hmm. So there's that. Emily's. Emily is going to be a bit more of a B-plot character and mostly an assisting character to mm -hmm. Michael's stuff. Like, most of the focus is going to be on Michael and Peggy's relationship. Um, yeah. And exploring some of the past. And, like, I was thinking, like, Peggy... Um, when she got the news that Michael had quote-unquote died, like, her image of her older brother kind of crystallized into this fairly perfect version of Michael like she kind of mm -hmm. whitewashed a lot of his rougher edges like like Michael was Michael's not perfect as I said he's, he has his depression spirals he's got issues with anger and um, bit some pride like his pride can easily be hit um, he's also like a gay man in the 1940s so he's just a bundle of issues and he went to boarding school in the 1930s in Britain <laughs> you read some testimonies uh -huh. from what it was like and it's like <laughs> Michael just being a little bit twitchy about a couple things is like a good case situation like a, a best case scenario um mm -hmm. and still like <laughs> I sort of have a bit of a joke for myself where it's like um so in the pursuit of getting like a super soldier who's also going to be a bit in the mold of T.E. Lawrence um Lawrence of Arabia this very famous controversial figure from World War One um mm -hmm. they the Brits were trying to avoid getting another sensitive neurotic slightly egotistical gay academic and they managed to find the brunette version. <laughs> I will say Michael's Michael's made out of slightly sterner stuff. Well, good. Yeah. Also, I just wanted to imagine like em Emily and Peggy meeting, and Peggy's like, "Excuse me, who are you?" And then was like, "Hi, I'm your I'm your brother's platonic uh, platonic partner for undercover work." Yep. <laughs> Nice family y'all got. 
Yeah. Bye. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is this relationship is going to wind up being a queer platonic polycule. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Happy belated pride. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the best solution to a weird situation um, that they could think up of. So, um, yeah, it's basically Peggy just like erased the parts of Michael that she didn't like. Like she wasn't going to mm-hmm. erase the fact that her bro- her older brother was gay. It's more just like erase the attitude problem. Um, yeah, erase that he could be kind of a arrogant shit sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His entire teen year, she just conveniently forgot about. <laughs> Hey, you know what? All of us were teenagers at one point or another. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, this is a perfect image of Michael, and this is something that's going to haunt them again later on in the 50s when um, their father Harrison dies, because to bring back that younger brother, um, Matthew was 14 when Michael mm-hmm. quote-unquote died, and his parents just shattered they they were completely devastated by this and peggy at that time left to do her training for the soe and then Mm -hmm. like she's going Mm -hmm. on the secret missions and then she's over in the states she does not communicate all that often with her family and poor matthew is just like having to deal with his parents grief and his own and nobody there to help him so yeah Mm -hmm. that funeral is not going to be fun yeah, yeah, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. So, in Emily's case, like, going back to what what's going to be her B-plot, um, so she and Edith aren't together during this fic because Emily is thinking that she's not coming back to Britain because mm-hmm. of the choices that she made to follow Michael because part of the plan is that Michael does this big, this big showy defection, like, going rogue. And Michael mm-hmm. might stay a rogue agent. And she's like, yeah. somebody's got to be there to help keep him from going off a deep end. And, mm-hmm. like, I trust Roger to do a lot of that, to help him out with that. But, like, he can't, Roger can't do this on his own. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I've known Michael enough and, like, we trust each other that we need to, um, that I need to be there too. And on top of that, Emily is just thinking like, I don't like, even before the war started, the university was not on the cards for me. I So I was never going to get a post-secondary education. Um, I'm lucky that I have the education that I do have and the skills mm-hmm. I do have, but like almost nothing is translatable into like actual civilian work. Um, yeah, and I don't have any references because all of my all of the things I did during the war are top secret, and mm-hmm. like uh, the SOE wouldn't be revealed to the public. Uh, like the existence of the SOE wasn't revealed until the mid '60s, and even mm-hmm. then, the British um, are very secret. Like they're very particular about keeping this information secret. And like I work in archives and uh, records management and personnel records are kept for a hundred years. And I Mm -hmm. think in Britain, like amongst their spies, their rules are life of person plus like 25 years. Mm 
before their records are released and even then it's probably going to be heavily redacted so emily's Mm -hmm. in a situation where like i can't talk to anybody about what i have done i don't have any references um i i am completely dependent on these people to give me employment and Mm -hmm. she's also like i've been i'm immune i have been vampirized would any man in his right mind marry me like, <laughs> I am not going to have a family. I'm not going to live a normal, a quote-unquote normal life because that's what's being pushed really hard on a lot of people at this mm-hmm. point. Especially after the war. Yeah. Like, I can I can understand people desiring s- some sort of normalcy after everything that's happened. Like, it's just, like, been almost 50 years of constant upheaval. <laughs> but, like... Mm-hmm. Not everybody is going to fit in with that. Not everybody is going to make the transition to peacetime. And the nuclear mm-hmm. family was just the worst thing that happened to society, <laughs> in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, this atomization of families is not great, is not good. So she's looking at Edith, and it's like, if I could get employment city side, like, I could see a future with us. Like, we could make something work. Um, Mm -hmm. Because Edith is also working for British Intelligence by this point, but she's, like, in... She's creating MI13's archives. MI13 is, like, the supernatural spy organization that Britain has that was introduced in the 1980s. Yeah, 80s. Um, It's related to the Captain Britain stuff and Excalibur with Kitty Pride. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So, like... Edith can have a normal job. She can have a quote-unquote normal life, even though, even though she's related to the... Um, she's Jonathan Amina's granddaughter, like Jonathan Amina from Dracula. Uh, ah, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. I was like, hmm, a harker. Yeah. I don't know if Dracula's canon to Marvel or not. <laughs> well, it is. Um, her uh, Edith's dad, Quincy, is a vampire hunter. Interesting, yeah, okay. Yeah, just following the family business. Um, and also by this point, he is raising Rachel Van Helsing, who is Abraham Van Helsing's great-granddaughter. Um, yeah, so it all mm-hmm, comes around. Mm-hmm. And Edith has her own relationship with Ken and Cri- Kenneth Crichton and uh, just Dracula vampires, all this sort of stuff. So Emily's thinking that she breaks up with Edith. So she's on her own. She's depressed. She's trying to take care of, of Michael and Roger and Mike and Roger is also dr- doing his level best to help out. Um, and then during the course of the season, she's going to meet one um, NKVD agent who is sent out to deal with the Dottie situation. His name is Ivan mm-hmm. Petrovich Bajukov. In the Marvel comics, bless you. He is Natasha's foster father. In my okay. timeline, he's Natasha's grandfather interesting yeah. okay yeah um yeah there's there's that and they emily develops this relationship with ivan and like they're it's both like a mutual honey trap for spy reasons but also they catch feelings <laughs> they catch genuine feelings oh. yeah oh uh it doesn't end well um it ends with um so i got season three and then there's going to be another fic set kind of after that where they follow the hydra line down to peru and that's where emily like needing 
for various reasons, she has to shoot Ivan. And Aww. yeah, um, so she thinks he's dead. And then she mm-hmm. kind of goes on her own for a little bit, like just trying to deal with everything because finally all of her just baggage and emotions come crashing down on her because Emily is one of those people who does not deal with her emotions. She just mm-hmm. buries everything and tries oh, to honey. just tries oh, to honey. Power, th- power through. And finally mm-hmm. when she's given that moment of quiet and peace she just it's like I, I can't even Implodes. get out of bed. <laughs> like it's that situation. And Oh, yeah, you're pregnant. ruh Yeah, and she thought that she could never get pregnant because of the whole vampire situation. It's like... Mm-hmm. The frick! Luckily, luckily, <laughs> she, is, she is saved by the Joyce Franks. They're like, you have a structure, you have people who are going to help you out. Um, and she reconnects with Edith. In this situation, uh, I was taking some inspiration from... Um, an Animorphs podcast I was listening to where they described like how the main characters go their separate ways for a while mm-hmm. because like mm-hmm. they're trying to deal with their own stuff and it's like Emily at the end of this arc she's like I I do platonically love you Michael but right now I can't be around you without having these horrible like everything comes back yeah. when I look at you and it's like, I don't want our, our relationship to be like that. I don't want to be angry at you all the time. I don't want to be sad around you all the time. It's not good. I'll come back when mm-hmm. I'm better. And he understands that. And it is... <laughs> Rick, it is going to be hard for me to write that. But it's mm-hmm. got to happen for them for a bit. Um, yeah. And it's around that time. Like that. This is where the whole... like. Carter family drama at the funeral happens because the month that Emily gives birth to her daughter Sabrina is the same month that Harrison dies. So they, Uh-oh. yeah, so just a lot of heavy stuff going on. And oh, yeah, the birth doesn't go that great because giving birth to a mutant dompier is kind of a hard thing to do. And unsurprising. Yeah. Also, because birth, the birthing process is never as easy as anyone makes it seem. Yeah, and then you just... Unless you got really, really good drugs. Yeah, and then you just throw in the whole, oh yeah, you're technically part of the undead into there, so. Yay! Um, Emily does get better. I am kind of invoking a Sleeping Beauty motif for that whole thing, but like... Yeah, mm-hmm. eventually, like, she gets better, and this is where they finally come up with the whole, we're going to be a queer platonic polycule family to take care of this baby. Cool. <laughs> and it's honestly the best solution for everybody, because, like, Emily and Michael are, like, it's a platonic love, but it is a very deep love, and neither of them can really see living their lives without each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but also Michael and Roger are like OTP and Emily and Edith are OTP and Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. we don't want it's basically like we don't want to have to choose and we don't want to live separately that much and yes (laughs) like okay we're gonna all come together and live on this island off the coast of Morocco 
where we do our <laughs> spy stuff and we still have to deal with Hydra because they are like, it is like trying to deal with termites. They just keep coming, or like cockroaches, they just keep coming back. I was going to say, cockroaches feels like a pretty good comparison. Yeah, yeah. so they're dealing with that. There's also the vampire situation. Um, because, mm-hmm. so, for a long time, like, especially after the events of the novel Dracula, um, there was uh-huh. a decline in, vamp- in vampiric activity, and then there's a sudden upswing of it in the 1930s. <laughs> I'm just sorry. I'm just picturing like the dec- like van like actual vampiric activity rising and falling. They have a chart, and then like and then twilight hits, and, and every vampire is like is like, oh god, I need to go shop at Hollister exclusively now. Yeah. So um, I need bright colors and pastels. <laughs> so it's uh during the fifties and sixties that Emily meets. One Eric Brooks, aka Blade, because in the comic books, as I as I read on various sources, uh, Jacqueline Falsworth and Blade have a bit of a thing going on. Yeah, I think I I feel like I remember hearing that at some point. Yeah. in one of my many many wiki dives. <laughs> yes, so I'm like that sounds cool. Put a pin in it for the future. So yeah, mm-hmm. they're doing vampire stuff and Hydra related stuff in the fifties. Starting in the 60s and into the 70s is going to be my, uh, and a little bit into the 80s is going to be my main uh, X-Men series. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be quite a few fics that focus on Emily's daughter, Sabrina, because yeah. she's also immune and a damp here. And there's also the crossover with the whole spy side of Marvel. Um, so, um, so <laughs> she she is the most specialist girl. <laughs> she is a bit of and a very beloved. <laughs> Look, um, her main mutation is um, she can switch the places of two objects, or um, both animate and inanimate. Uh, I got this uh, mutation idea huh. from Jujutsu Kaisen. Uh, one of the characters there has this power, and I'm like, oh my god, it is so simple, but so brilliant. So, like, okay. with a snap of her fingers, um, like, I'm just looking at stuff in my room, like, I could switch. Uh, she could switch the position of, um, like, my chair and the sewing machine in my room. Mm-hmm. Um, or she could switch the, the position of myself and um, a lamp. It, the, the lamp next to me. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, basically, like, she can do that. And she also knows how to fight. So, yeah. I, I just think that it would be very fun to write action scenes with Sabrina. Yeah. No real psychic powers from that girl other than the vampiric hive mind that sometimes happens. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the super special psychic powers are, they belong to one Jean Grey. Um, yes. <laughs> the most special of special girls. I'm sorry, Sabrina. Jean Grey is indeed the most specialist special girl. Yes. <laughs> Sabrina has her friends, and she has her fun, mutant adventures. Um, in the meantime, Emily, like, she's also, like, helping track down um, Edith's daughter, Lucy, and um, mm-hmm. who becomes the se- my version, the Silver Scorpion. Um, the Silver Scorpion has, like, this really cool armor that, like, it's silver with a red cape, 
and there's like no real lore about it because like the silver scorpion only appeared in like two comic book issues in the 40s before kind of disappearing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's like need to do more with this and then again last night tanner showed me a picture of um some armor worn by cable's son i think and there's a lot of similarities between how they're drawn and i'm like okay ideas for later i don't know some sort of weird (laughs) alien technology that landed on earth because earth seems to be the dumping ground for everything yes (laughs) and the people of earth are just like please dear god we just want to not be special for once in our lives Look, you get one celestial that bled out onto your planet while it was forming, and suddenly <laughs> everything's got to come here. Yeah, that actually happened in the comic books. That's weird. Oh my god, why not? Yeah. Uh, why not? <laughs> why not? Um, and then the other kid that she's helping Michael find is a kid named uh, Fred Davis Jr. Um, he was the second Bucky. He is the son of one of Michael's first um, uh, cell, like part of his SOE cell that went into France in 41. And Michael made some bad mm-hmm. calls that wound up getting his his team wiped out. Um, and he's been carrying that guilt for a long time. And mm-hmm. he knows, also he was crushing real hard on Fred Davis Sr. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a mixture of like, I want to be you, and I want to be with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Michael, when he gets the opportunity, decides, I need to track, I need to at least find out if, like, Fred Davis, if, like, the Davises are okay. Um, and he finds out that, like, um, a senior's wife um, is unfortunately very sick. She had served with the um, National Fire Brigades and she suffered from smoke inhalation um, causing her cancer. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's her fairly troubled son, Fred, because he's been kind of shuffled around between various relatives taking care of him. And it's... I did describe it as a bit old doll-esque, but maybe not that bad, mm-hmm. but it's still not great. Like he's kind of an afterthought for a lot of family members. So basically Fred is going to get the Eggsy treatment. You know, Eggsy from Kingsman. I don't actually. Um, oh. Also, um, I just want to make sure uh, how relevant this is to Emily. <laughs> um, mostly like kind of her adopted son too. Okay, yeah. cool. cool. They just wind up adopting children after a while, kind of like the Bat family. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, like, this is still, like, stuff that's in the planning stage, too. Um, Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's not like Emily is going to get less relevant. It's more like Emily kind of starts, after a while, she starts kind of, like, taking a backseat to a lot of stuff as, like, the younger generation happens. Like, let them do certain things. I'm more here to help and train and all that sort of stuff. Um, I do... When I initially started out on this, I kind of had, like, a three-pronged approach where I had, like, I'm going to have this Invader series that's mostly focused on Michael and his people. And Mm -hmm. then have this Mm -hmm. S.H.I.E.L.D. series. So, like, after season three, there would be a time skip to the 50s. um, And then probably another time skip up to, like, the 70s where I do introduce um, Mm -hmm. uh, Nick Fury. um, And all that sort of stuff. And then the third prong is... I'm I, I'm actually fairly 
good with um with phase one marvel um age of ultron not a great movie i also think it's out of place uh there's <laughs> there's a video by nando v movies where he makes the argument that age of ultron narratively should have happened after uh winter soldier or not after winter soldier before winter soldier okay yeah because like it to him and like after revisiting age of ultron i'm like yeah it seems like joss whedon had written age of ultron kind of in isolation from other parts of the mcu um because there's barely any mention of shield no longer existing and just all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. and there's just other problems with that movie but like i think moving it uh to before winter soldier would help uh like make that movie better Mm -hmm. and just having different choices in what they do (laughs) yeah so emily is going to show up once again in the modern mcu stuff um mostly focus on the vampire side in this case but like she's also like her michael roger are kind of like the last members of the original um world war ii branch and because of like their various things like emily being immune vampire michael having the super soldier serum and inhumans living um an average of 150 years like they're in pretty good shape they look like middle-aged you know parents Mm -hmm. at this Mm -hmm. point like they're not fully in the game but they can help out the characters a lot and also it would be an interesting way to reintroduce one blade who got the mcu Mm -hmm. started i Mm -hmm. i still maintain to this very day that the mcu does not exist without blade (laughs) he proved that a comic book movie could work and damn, I'm excited yeah. to see Maharshala Ali just, like, slice through so many vampires. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she's going to be reintroduced. And there's going to be other mutants involved once more. Because there's a bit of a reprieve in the mutant situation throughout the 90s. and Basically, my timeline is, like, you have the World War II stuff. Um, in the mm-hmm. 40s, it bleeds over into the 50s. The 60s, 70s, and and early 80s are X-Men stuff. The late 90s, early 2000s is going to be um, where I put the Sam Raimi uh, Spider-Man films. Because even though 3 was kind of not great, like those first two movies were really good. Mm -hmm. And I really like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. And I think like being able to continue his storyline would be great. So... Um, yeah, 90s, 2000s is mostly Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and then the 2010s onwards is more Avengers. And I guess 2020s would be post-Avengers, depending on how I deal with um, Thanos. I might make some different choices. So, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. mostly, like, Emily's story kind of, like, transitions into... Like, being an older person, like, eventually, like, having an adult child and, you know, dealing with that. And then dealing with, um, first, Ivan, like, when I, so I said that Ivan 
like she shoots Ivan and she thinks he's dead. And then he comes uh-huh. back because it turns out that um, he got some fairly quick medical attention to deal with that gut wound. Um, yeah. And then hit out for the last couple of years of Stalin's life because you fall out of favor. You got to, you know, keep quiet and all that or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not great. Um, but yeah, he comes back. He's fine. He's working within the newly formed Leviathan Red Room uh, KGB situation. Um under his frenemy, um, Vasily Karpov, mm-hmm. um, who is not a good dude. I kind of envision their relationship as being kind of like Hannibal and Will Graham from the Hannibal TV series. Of just like, yeah, yeah they don't bring out the best in each other. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so there's that whole saga that involves um, Ivan's son, Yuri, and then uh Ivan's granddaughter, Natasha. And just all that sort of stuff. And Emily is involved too because <laughs> whenever Vasily is mad at Ivan, he decides, how do I hurt him? Go after his children. Which is a bad idea when you go after Sabrina. Because mm-hmm. uh, Emily goes full mama bear. And even Ivan <laughs> oh, is like, yeah. when he finds out about the kidnapping plot, like, to get Sabrina, he's like, you have no idea what you have just released. <laughs> you better hope that she just wants to get her daughter and leave. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's that whole thing, and eventually it comes to, like, that whole situation comes to an end. I, I also decided to make Natasha about a decade older than, or 15 years older than she is in the MCU. Uh, they put her birth date mm-hmm. at 85, and I decided to make her, like, she would be born in 1970. So she's the same age as um, as Tony. Um, so by the time that the Soviet Union finally collapsed in, collapses in 92, she's, um, she's she would be about 22 by that point. Um, but she defected a bit mm-hmm. earlier in 89. So, like, there's a period of time in, like, the late 80s, early 90s where it's basically, like, a Bourne movie for like, a Jason Bourne movie for her, where she's trying to survive as a rogue agent with <clears throat> all that sort of stuff. And eventually, like, she winds up coming under the protection of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, specifically under the protection of, um, officially Nick Fury unofficially Peggy Carter's involved and then they figure out like who she is and some of her backstory and she brings up the name Ivan Bajukov and Peggy by this Peggy long ago learned about who Sabrina's father was so she's like okay I gotta call Emily and be like yeah I have someone I want you to meet and it's sort of like a bit of a journey to figure out like their family situation now because I'm not your grandmother, but I am. I had a relationship with your grandfather. I don't know how we're going to deal with this, but also, like, we need this information. Also, like, just, like, dealing with healing and grief and all that sort of stuff. And Emily is also, like, because of her powers, she ages so slowly that she's. It takes her a while to really start thinking about. Again, she's bad at bearing her emotions, but, like, the whole 
I am functionally immortal and I am watching all of my friends get older and all of my loved ones get older and I don't know what I'm going to do when a lot of them are gone. Like, yeah. she's especially thinking about Edith because Edith has refused... Um, she was given an opportunity to basically get something kind of like... Um, there's this immortality formula in the MCU that's used to explain why why people are around for so long and don't age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was used on Natasha. Um, and there was an opportunity for Edith to use it, but she refused. Um, there was also another situation where she could have like embraced the vampirism because Edith's also been been She never got the full three bites. My, my vampire rule is that you need three bites to become a vampire. Um, she got two of them. But she's strenuously avoided the third bite because she wants to you know live at least something close to a human life so like mm -hmm. she's talked about this with emily and what they're gonna do and what needs to be done once edith is, has died but like emily is still like i don't know what i'm gonna do with myself like i i've said all of this like I, i'm gonna be fine and i've tried to tell myself i'm going to be fine i don't know if i will be fine <laughs> And she's kind of also, after a certain point, starting to count down the years with Michael and Roger. Because they're kind of like the last two standing of her original friends group. And she's yeah. like, I have 30 years with Michael and 50 years with Roger. I gotta make the best of this. And, yeah. like, after Edith passes, like, she's on her own for a bit. And it's basically Sabrina who's like, okay, Blade's been there. Uh, he's also a Dompier. He's also functionally immortal. Maybe, hey, you two, start dating each other. She does. She does the Hallmark Christmas movie kid. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> She's been shipping, um, Emily and Blade like, uh, after Edith died for a while. Like, come on, mom, you can rebound. You can do it. <laughs> um, and like I envision Emily and Eric. Eric Blade's relationship is kind of going to be like um, have you ever seen uh, Only Lovers Left Alive? No, I have not. Okay, it's an indie film by Jim Jarmusch. It's about two vampires. They're played by Tom Hiddleston and uh, Tilda Swinton. Um, oh, I think I've heard of this. Isn't that like yeah. a weird incest one? Uh, no, there isn't really incest in it. It's just like two vampires who've been lovers for a long time and Tom Hiddleston's vampire Adam is in a depression spiral and it's all about getting him out of it um, but like one of the things I find interesting with their relationship is that they do spend time apart like um, Eve's been around for a thousand years Adam's been around for 500 years so like they'll spend long periods of time together and then they'll spend some like a couple decades apart like what is time to vampires what is time to someone who is functionally immortal um so yeah like at times emily and eric are going to be together and as as time goes on they sometimes need some time apart they come back together it's it's fine like they have this really good they develop a really good rapport and they understand each other and how they communicate with each other and like what each other needs like they're both the sort of people who do need alone time mm -hmm. and yeah it's just like it's navigating basically a couple centuries. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I've always been fascinated with, like, a 
there's kind of this archetype I've had since I was a teenager of like a vampire who has recently turned and has family who is still around because a lot of vampire fiction like the family is gone so like they don't have any ties to really anybody left um I guess to make the transition to immortality a bit a bit easier when you don't have those attachments but like what if those attachments are still around and like how do you navigate like eventually losing those attachments um and like dealing with loss and dealing with like being around people whose lifespan is significantly shorter than yours so i think emily when i get to that point she's going to be a very interesting character to explore with that aspect of her life and her transition into it um yeah <laughs> yeah but again um, that's far in the future yeah um I'm going to go ahead and call a white flag and say I'm going to ask the last question yeah. for the episode because we've been recording for almost two hours and I need to eat dinner. That is fair. Um, so, Lindsay, your your last question for today is uh, why do you love Emily so much? Um, I think I can probably guess, but... She's one of the best characters I've ever written. <laughs> and also... Yeah, like, a fairly deep character. I, I still feel like I'm still being introduced to her. Because um, this is, like, the second full-length fic I've written that has her centered as um, the mm -hmm. main character. So it'll be interesting to see her develop later on. I didn't even get into, like, mm -hmm. how she was supposed to be, like, um, a fairly cheerful, happy-go-lucky person when I was initially planning her out and just like writing her I'm like no this girl has baggage like she can't even do the false cheerfulness but I kind of like the idea of her being like um, kind of like an ice covered volcano of a person like just like you see this one version and then you find out that there's a lot more to her Mm -hmm. So, yeah, exploring her depths is going to be very interesting. Um, and just, like, having her be this character who is very um, deep and emotional, but also very strong. Like, I, I've almost undersold her because I'm like, she goes through <laughs> so much stuff yet comes back no matter what. And just, mm -hmm. like, dealing with all of this weird craziness, um, taking a lot of stuff in stride, but also, like, exploring, like, what her, like, how she uh, changes and grows over time. The good decisions she makes, the bad decisions she makes, um, because she, like, yeah, she's a heroine. I, I would say that she's a fairly good person, but she deals with a lot. I I didn't even get into the mm -hmm, whole, mm -hmm. like, her spiritual development. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, like, she has to kick so much of her Calvinist upbringing um, because, like, part of her de depression spirals is being like, does God fucking hate me? Like, mm -hmm. because when you think about it, a lot of the stuff she goes through is, like, some pretty rough rough stuff and 
like eventually she finds uh, peace and solace in finding her place in the world. That's a big sort of long-term story arc that she goes on is just like trying to reconcile like the different parts of her nature with like how she wants to be. She wants to be a good person and she thinks that you are always working to be a good person. Mm -hmm. Like nobody is born good or bad. It's all about your choice and you're always working on yeah. yourself. Um, and you just try to do you try to do the best by people and knowing that your actions always have consequences um, no matter how small they are. And that includes good consequences. Sometimes you need to focus on like the good side, okay? Don't don't dwell. Please stop dwelling. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, the thing I like about Emily is that I feel like I am always finding something new with her something different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <sighs> that's, that's very good yeah. so thank you so much Lindsay for coming on today <laughs> to talk about Emily I loved getting to hear all 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 about her <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I gave you such a task no. <laughs> with editing hey, you don't worry about it you're good <sighs> yeah so uh Lindsay, where would you like to be found on the internet? And what do you have that you would like to shout out and or promote? Um, I know you have stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can be found on Twitter at lindsaym476. It's spelled with an A and you can get to pretty much most of my other social media BS from there. Um, my fix are on uh, Archive of Our Own. I have experimented with um, fanfic.net, but like it's just not built for what I need um, so mm -hmm. my fix are under the username uh, Mitchy M-I-T-C-H-I underscore 476 um, the series itself is called The Invaders uh, I'm currently sitting at 4 fix and there's more to come yeah 4 fix um, and I also have a dedicated Tumblr to it that I should use more often and maybe engage with people. It is uh, Mitchy476, so spelled the same as the uh, as the AO3 account, just without the underscore. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm also uh, the co-host of Not If I Ever Beat You First um, with Tanner. And you can find our Twitter at N-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Um, mm -hmm. And I am the voice of Belle from uh, Pokemon Adventures in the Millennium. Uh, and we've also got a Twitter for that. Probably just look up Pokemon Adventures in the Millennium. Uh, I can't remember the Twitter off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> we are going to be recording more episodes for that soon. So uh, there's more content for that. And nice. Yeah. Um, in that case, then I will go ahead and do my outro. Okay. The Home for Weird OCs is a part of the Corner Podcast Network. They can be found through Acast and your local podcasting platform of choice. Our theme song is Violent by Poddington Bear, courtesy of the Free Music Archives. We can be reached at waywardocpod at gmail.com or at waywardocpod on Twitter.
This podcast is partly recorded on the ancestral lands of the Kiakapui, Ka, Osage, and the Ocheti Shukawan Oyate. If you'd like to talk about Wayward or the other Corner Podcast Network shows, we have our own Discord server. There should be a permit invite on the Twitter accounts, but if not, just message one of us and we'll get you the invite. And I am always looking for guests to talk about their original characters on the show, so if you or someone you know is interested, uh, feel free to drop me a line, or I also have a Google form that is the pinned tweet on the Wayward Twitter account, just goes over stuff like availability, um, setting, that kind of a thing. Um, and as with all podcasts, it's always super helpful if you can subscribe and rate us on your listening platform of choice. Um, especially I would appreciate it if you leave a review and if you send me a screenshot of your review, I will read it on air because I would appreciate it for the hundredth episode of Wayward that's coming up in about a month. <laughs> um, but because also that all helps us to find a wider audience and to brighten more people's days. So thank you all for listening. This has been the Humphrey Wood OCs, and we hope you enjoyed your stay. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kiwis seem like nice birds. They seem like they'll have health care. Yeah. Fan fictions are always a mystery. You never know what you're going to get. It could be the perfect continuation of a story you treasure, or it could be a total dumpster fire. Master Roshi's the god of time? And he's like, it's been a hundred years, Goku! Gohan is angry and evil now, and he's- it's the, what? The, the world is controlled by the great Saiyan. My name is Michael, and together with my friends Sergio and Jake, we scrape the bottom of the barrel and read the best of the worst for you on our podcast, So You Think You Can Fanon. Oh, little Mac, she cried. You're such a hunk. Take me down. He was a hunk. Okay, he said hunkly, and he took her nap. <laughs> <laughs> you can give us a listen at anchor.fm slash SYTYC or wherever podcasts can be found. Trust me, it's one for the books.